this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Hear you coming through loud and clear, good buddy. All right then, ten four. <sighs> Cracking a beverage. Yep, bought myself a tall can. Tall can to podcast. I figured I'd, I'd step away from why buy multiple beers when I can just get the same amount of beer in one convenient can. I feel like the tall can is. Just an invitation to think about how much liquid is actually pounding against the wall on your bladder in an hour. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that's why I have a garbage can here next to my feet. You and... were hurting last week by the end. Oh, yeah. This time I can I can just pee in the garbage can while we record. Yeah, well, maybe we should get some uh, official random badassery catheters. <laughs> 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 That'll be our first branding. <laughs> you seen those catheter commercials? Uh, I think so. It's been a while. I don't see many commercials. So, yeah, there's one where um, it's like a you know catheter by mail commercial, uh-huh. and uh, you know they interview you know actual users, and you have like this <laughs> older pilot guy that flies this little tiny stunt pilot, and he's just talking about these great catheters, and I probably and he just says catheter like far too many times, and you know it's like a directive to be like, you know, we really got ingrained, you know, it's got to, you got to sell the point that this Make is sure about. you say Coca-Cola. You got to say catheter, say catheter, catheter, catheter. And he just says it. Oh, and you're is, like, all right, man, I get clean cath one. Um, God, I, it's on the tip of my tongue. I was like, that sounds like clean cath. There's one I think called clean cath. And I'm like, that sounds like a nickname for a woman who doesn't like dust, you know, uh, clean cath. Yeah. Clean Kathy. She's, she's obsessive compulsive clean cath. <laughs> I'd like to buy one of her. There it is. It is Liberator Medical Catheter Commercial. Liberator. Liberator That's Liberator Medical. Name for yeah. something that you shove in your pee hole. Well, it it gives you the feeling of just being liberated from the 
evil clutches of shitty catheters, apparently. I don't know that anybody has ever felt liberated by something being shoved in their urethra. Well, that's the, that's just me. That's their whole, you know, that's their whole mission statement is comfort, freedom. You know, they're portable. You can, this guy keeps them in his little plane, you know, he's got extra ones in his bag. He can do it while he's in the air. It's great. I can only laugh so much. My, my dad uses one, so maybe not a liberator. <laughs> well, hey, he, maybe he needs to know about these. Maybe this will change his life. Well, what's funny about it is uh, a little, <laughs> little tiny bit of, of family history that no one ever wanted to know. You know. When I would go out drinking, I would pee all the time. You know, normal people pee a lot when they drink. You're supposed to because, you know, you're drinking a diuretic. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but me, a lot. And then it started, as I started getting older, it started happening during the night. Mm. And as, I've, as I don't drink anymore, it's been like, I think like almost three years, two years, three years. Uh, since then, different truth of it is actually that we're far more interested and open to it than we thought we were. Mm. What was the thing that I said I was going to go back to? You remember? Oh my god! <laughs> well, I guess we're right back into where we were. Oh, I know. Um, the direction of the show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In the sense that uh, this is something I've come to very recently, and I've been—I don't even remember how I got to it. It's, I've been through so many different things now. I don't actually articulate my thoughts to other people very often, so like it—it feels like shoveling <laughs> to go back and remember <laughs> where thoughts came from because I just mm-hmm. keep piling stuff on my but what I really do with the show now is it's literally for me mm. because I found out that the I asked myself I'm like why am I doing this and it was because I felt like in order to read this stuff and to go through the stuff that I'm fascinated by it felt really passive to just read it that I wasn't forcing myself to articulate it actually made me start to understand. And you know how the brain works, you know, you're, you're built like I am like the more we cogitate something, the more that we become able to understand it, both, you know, believe and disbelieve, you know, like to be able to understand Mm -hmm. the process of it. So I started to realize that the podcast, especially in the solo form that it is, it's really just, it's a focal point for me. It's a mechanism for me to learn. Oh, interesting. So when I go into the episodes, I really don't give a shit whether anybody wants to listen to it. It's literally, I'm creating an audio record for myself. So it's like a notebook. Yeah. So pulling things from those old episodes, it's like, oh, I want to preserve this. Because my, you know, my chances of going back and listening to the full 130-something episode archive of the other show are slim. But if I can find little nuggets to put into my feed for myself, cool. When I want to, you know, like if I want to go two weeks and I don't have anything to say, I don't put out an episode. If I want to do four days in a row, I do. Because, I mean, my numbers have just plummeted because of the change. But I don't <laughs> give a shit. Uh, fascinating though. Like in a weird kind of way, it feels like you've always headed towards that. Mm-hmm. You know, like now thinking back through the different iterations of the show and what you've said about it all along, um, even in bits and pieces where you were describing what it what it was to you, I feel like it was always headed this way. Well, what I didn't understand was the context of what I was doing. I think, and for a while, I definitely got lost in the whole 
wow, podcasting is fun. Maybe this podcast can be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe I can do this for, you know, make make, make money doing this or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I, I lost the context of what I was actually doing. You know, like, why am I reading this? Why am I talking about these things? Why am I doing these things? And it's to understand them better. But why do I want to understand them better? And what I had to actually come back to, you might be surprised that I forgot this, was to be able to write books. Huh. So (laughs) once I realized, I'm like, oh, that's my ultimate goal. Then I was like, I don't give a shit if anybody listens to podcasts then. Mm -hmm. Because the podcast is just a tool for me to get the goal of what I really want to do. So wow, that's crazy. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting leap. I didn't know. I mean, I, I could kind of sense some of that just from some of your social media presence. Like if it, it felt like you were headed back in that direction, but it's weird to hear you vocalize it. It's just yeah, there's just a, a moment of like social media presence is like n- nil again right now because it just I'm not interested in it. Yeah. I'm just tired of people listen listening to on Twitter people whine and then on Instagram people trying to, you know, whatever front. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's just, it, and then no no judgment of the people. It's just like it was a noise for me. Mm-hmm. It was distracting. I and mean, I realized I'm like, dude, even if I'm only giving this an hour a day, I can yeah. be doing something better with that hour. Like writing a book. Exactly. And that's what I've been doing. I've actually been scheduling myself in the afternoon. I'm I'm doing for the first time I'm I'm trying to do nonfiction. What? So, really? Huh. Yeah. Because I, I was half expecting, considering where this podcast has gone, I was expecting that you were going to head back to Charlie. I have a little bit, but I think right now that just needs to sit. I need to get yeah, something else so out. Weird. I just plucked that name out of my brain. Like I haven't thought about that in so long. <laughs> That's good. That means the name is fitting. That it just yeah. it belongs. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I wanted to, I want to do some nonfiction. What I, my my ultimate goal is to. There was a format that I that I played around with on the show a little bit before I got into um, what I was just talking about, mm-hmm. where I was presenting information about a topic and at the end asking critical questions about it. Yeah. I actually want to take that format and make that into my book format. Oh, so instead of, tr- instead of trying to do, you know, like uh, back to aliens, you know, you said, so aliens. Instead of trying to do a book about uh, abduction, I mean, sorry, an episode about abduction and fit (laughs) this massive amount of information that there is into like an hour, maybe two hour episode Mm -hmm. and ask critical questions at the end, I can do a book on that and then pull the critical questions in at the end. Oh, sure. It's the scope of the book is more fitting to the size of the topics. whereas. I can do with the podcast is just there's little, there's little things when I'm reading where I'm like, that's not part of a book project, this little idea here, but that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, you know, like um, I did an episode about um, essentially about how the senses are not as reliable as we think they are. Like the there's a part in the singularity is near where Kurtzfeld talks about how what we actually see is only a hint or an outline of what is actually in the visual field. 
Sure. It's a that, very slim band. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he calls it, he says there's 12, 10 to 12 movies that the eyes record and all of them are res, low resolution. So one is only picking up contrast. One's only picking up edges. He says, so there's so much more information there. He says, but we will never know what the full information that there is because we could, I, he doesn't go into this. I assume what he's insinuating is that we could never build even a device capable of doing that because we wouldn't know how to do it because we don't know what isn't there. Yeah. And even from that perspective, um, I, I don't remember, I God, it's weird. It, it is weirdly synergistic. Some of this stuff. Um, I forget what I was reading. It was about a week ago and I was reading about how our perception of what the senses are in and of themselves is so rudimentary and so wrong. Our perception of the five senses, for example, um, even that idea is like a century old and it's wrong. Um, you know, our, our understanding of what our senses of is just so elementary, rudimentary and just incorrect. Um, like, I mean, there's that one shrimp that, that was given in the example that I saw um, that sees um, a color spectrum that's about 7,000% larger than ours. Oh, yeah. They talked about that thing on Radiolab one time. Yeah, exactly. And and it, like it can see infrared, like all the way up to like UVC B or C or something like that. So the what that what that freaking shrimp sees is so much broader of a range. And then they were talking about um, how a platypus um, maps its world through electromagnetic signals that it pulses from its bill. Jeez. Um, yeah. And so like, I mean, the platypus can literally swim through water at high speed without ever opening its eyes. And that's based on a very complex radar system that is hundreds of millions of years old. And how all creatures, um, given their lineages through the, the evolutionary chain, retain aspects of all of these senses because we all essentially come from the same genetic pool at the very beginning. Um, that there are, are certain aspects of our sensory organs that we have no understanding of. And it's not because our sensory organs aren't capable of perceiving these things. It's that because of social training or because of evolutionary time, um, we've learned to ignore the signals that come from them or um, we, they, they've become dormant uh, due to lack of use. Um, and it's even that one thing about like humans only use 7% of their brains or something stupid like that. I mean, it's such a weird, like how, how do you engage that? You know, how do you measure that? Um, so some of our, our weird colloquial understandings of how our, our, our bodies and our, our bodies perceive the universe is so weirdly skewed. Um, and so elementary that it's almost to the point where if we really want to start understanding what we're capable of as a species, we kind of have to start from scratch. Right. And I think that's my whole, that's part of what led me into being able to approach these topics from like a serious place because I realized I'm like, hold on a minute. We're operating as if all of this shit that we know is absolute. Yeah, sure. Um, we I don't, mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, the example I gave in the same episode where I talked about the eyeball thing is the black swan thing. Mm -hmm. It used to be considered stupid to think that there was such a thing as a black swan. Sure. But there is. There's a whole there's it's the Cygnus Atreides. They're in South Australia. They're all black swans. Yep. And then they started breeding them into the white swan population. So now they're all over the world. But people were uh, operating on the assumption. Not even the assumption. They were operating on the arrogant belief that all swans were white even though they hadn't seen every swan in existence. And 
that's like, I think that one of the things about scientific perspective in the popular sense right now, especially when it comes to cynical things about, you know, ghosts or aliens or whatever, is like, oh, that's stupid. That can't exist. How do we know? Yeah. We can't, we, we literally, science is incapable of disproving anything. Uh, I don't know about that. I just think, I just think that. I think that I think that it has to work much harder to disprove things. I think that you can't ever disprove it though. We'll never, we'll never know if we have all of the evidence. Yeah, but but you can you can operate as if something doesn't exist, and you can say I've found no evidence that this existed, but you can never say that this absolutely cannot exist. Yeah, but that but that means that we live in a world of absolute chaos, though. We do live in a world of absolute chaos. <laughs> that, that's definitely true, but the, the the point I'm trying to make is that you have to at least be able to make some reasonable assumptions, even if you know that they can be disproved later, because you need a, you need a framework by which to share a reality with other people. <laughs> of course, yeah. My my point is that we use the term like "oh, that can exist." I'm like, no, the term should be "there's no proof that that exists." Yeah, or as far as we know. With what we have, that doesn't exist. Sure. Especially when we talk about in space being infinite. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was putting out this metaphor to somebody the other day, or maybe it was just in my head, which is probably more <laughs> likely. Um, <laughs> but if I, if I give you five playing cards face down, and I tell you that one of them is the ace of spades, what are your chances of flipping over a card? With the ace of spades, one in five, right? Yep, 20%, sure. If you get to flip over all five, what are your chances? 100%. Exactly, because you're going to flip it over, right? You're going to flip over all five cards. Yeah, sure. Well, if 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 the ace of spades exists, you know, a representation of a possibility, right? If there are infinite cards and you can flip them over and you can flip them all over, that means that everything has the possibility of existing. And now you're starting to unravel the core concepts of quantum theory. Yeah, quantum theory is very popular with people in this realm, by the way. And, and not only that, but there, there are now plenty of people talking about how, how some of quantum and how some of string theory is, is, needs to be greatly refined too as well. But yeah, no, that's, that's, that's essentially the, the premise behind, kind of, I mean, I'm not a, physicist or anything like that but right. i mean that, at least from what i understand of quantum theory that's one of the core edicts of of quantum theory yeah so when you when you put forth like okay we we rely on our senses as our verification of truth even sure. when we when we defer to scientific principles and so forth those are based at their core in the senses sure we we not we may not be able to calculate the the distance between earth and the sun ourselves. But we trust that the person who did the calculation, we trust them. You know, it's a by proxy of their senses. Mm-hmm. We're saying they did the work and they actually saw the numbers and they actually did it. So it's still rooted in senses. So if we can't trust the senses a hundred percent and if infinity is the, really the limit of space. And if there are possibly Limitless, no, not limitless. We'll just say completely unseen dimensions mm-hmm. beyond the four that we know. Then there's absolutely no way that any of these things 
are completely ridiculous. Well, I mean, if, if, yeah, but if you think about it from that perspective, then there are quite a few things that we can't even make assumptions on. For example, um, as, as we understand it, gravity is still, as a concept, that is still not that old in the scope of human history. And our understanding of gravity as, as a, a force in the universe is so rudimentary. <laughs> oh, yeah, gravity, and, they don't we're, even... not even, we're not even talking about time yet and how time and gravity work together. And that's the fabric of our universe. And we barely understand well, time. Gravity is the snag in quantum theory. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. The reason quantum theory is not the theory of everything is because gravity doesn't make sense in quantum theory. Yep. Like, um, that doesn't work here. What is oh, it? It doesn't. That? They literally don't know what gravity is. You know, I was just yeah. reading something the other day. I need to read into it more because it was like a passing thing. But they said that if you actually do the the calculations, the moon doesn't make sense either. That the the moon should not be able to be in the orbit that it's in. That mm. there's that there there are mathematical problems with the moon. And this wasn't from one of the stranger things that i read this was actually from a science article sure so you take something as fundamental as gravity and something as fundamental as the moon and go we don't understand those then how are you going to tell me that it's not possible that dead people stick around or that people are visiting from other planets well, the other side of it, too, is that, you know, and, and this goes back to the sense thing that you're talking about, is that we measure the universe in very human terms. And right. I think that that's a huge mistake. Um, like understanding, understanding even something like the moon, for example, um, in the scope of a human lifetime is not something that, that is really that measurable because the moon could not could be totally impermanent like in a hundred million years from now the moon might go spinning off out of its orbit and it, like eventually to the point where it's no longer tidally locked to the earth and just go launching itself into space and even though for us a hundred million years is a long freaking time in the scope of the universe that's a blink of an eye man oh yeah and so like even which is the reason why like I still hold firm to this and I hope one day when I run for a political office that this comes out and everyone goes see he's a crazy nutball. Um <laughs> I still I still thoroughly believe that human civilization as we understand it is a lot older than we than That's we realize. So That's one of the conversations that I was re-listening to that I was going to cut out and put into I'm an episode. So, I'm so convinced by that. You well, know, there's um, more and more evidence mounting every day that that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and if you look at if you look at a lot of the 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 evidence of of certain impact craters that we're still finding, by the way, that are freaking massive. Um, I mean, there's there's this very strong possibility that the you know even from the the perspectives that we go back in myth and legend when it comes to the scope of human history and religion and everything we understand about the world as we understand it and and how human beings came to be. Um, there's a reason why all the crea creation myths are inherently the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, have you? See, have you ever heard of the Coral Castle? Mm, wow, why does that sound so familiar? I feel like I've just read that recently. If you have a computer with, I mean, the, if you can pull it up right now, pull up images of Coral Castle. Because I'm, I'm this dude, this old dude, <laughs> built this thing out of this quote-unquote castle out of coral by himself. Whoa. And what nobody knows how the fuck he did it to this day. Jesus. They have all these theories. They're like, oh, he used pulleys and levers. And they're like, sure, he could have used pulleys and levers, he said. But in order, some of the ton, some of those are like nine ton rocks, solid yeah. rock. 
They're wow. like, in order for him to be able to do that with a pulley and a lever, his pulley and his lever would have have to have been 350 feet high. This thing's incredible. And to I don't know if it shows you the spinning door, but there's a there's one door. I think it's a five ton block of coral, and it was spinning on one ball bearing. Yeah, that's crazy. You, you could go up and touch it with your finger, and it broke. I don't know about. I don't know how many, how long ago. I'm going to say like 15 years ago or something. Jeez. And they had to bring in a crane to pull the block out to try to fix it. And they tried to fix it and they put it back and it, they couldn't get it to work the way he did. So like wow. they literally don't know how this guy did it. And along those same lines, by the way, check out the, uh, the antechambers above the uh, tombs in the Great Pyramid. Oh, yeah. Those huge block of stone, they're like, how did they get those up there? 15-ton granite, perfectly cut 15-ton granite stones, yeah. Well, yeah, they're so, um, shoot. I think it's Gilbeckley Tempe, but I'm not sure. Oh, I've heard this. (laughs) Where the stones stones are put together, but they look like the stones were like almost like melted. Yeah, where they look like they were fused, yeah. Because they're so tight. Mm-hmm. You know, like they say, like you can't fit a piece of paper between them, and that's bullshit. But they are really <laughs> perfect. Well, a really, lot of really perfect. Of, but a lot of the estimation on that is that at one point or another they were tighter. It's just erosion and time have have mm-hmm. you know. So, so at one point, I think there was one guy who was, I was uh, whose report I was reading on it who said that at some point um, there were a few of the stones that were microns apart. Jesus, like where you literally could not get. Where you're squeezing like molecules through there, <laughs> so insane. There's a I have a book saved about the coral castle. I haven't read it yet, but it's written by this guy who's he's actually on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. So he and he's a, he's mathematically minded as well. That's his that's his his form of autism or his superpower, as I like to call it. He's just really good at math, um, and he became obsessed with the coral castle. And he's he's high functioning, so he can he can write books, obviously. So he started like digging into the guy left like these pamphlets. He wrote pamphlets, you know, like we would call them short books now, but you know, at the time they call them pamphlets. And he had written these two pamphlets that were just like completely nonsensical. Mm-hmm. And this guy just like went through them, and he started over time started to understand kind of what this um, skull Skullman, I think is the guy who made the coral castle, Lee mm-hmm. Skullman. Um, he started to understand what he was saying. And basically if the guy was correct, it rewrites our understanding of magnetism and electricity <clears throat> and gravity. Mm. Like, and it's, I, I haven't read it, so I can't really talk to it. But it's very interesting because if you take in the context of the things that we were just saying about like those three examples, what if that's true? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what if what if you are able to manipulate gravity? Maybe the reason that gravity doesn't work in quantum theory is because we don't understand gravity correctly. Oh, I fully believe that. I, I do fully too. believe that we, that we don't understand time or gravity. Um, outside of a theoretical model that is horribly incomplete. Right. Well, you know, the thing that always puzzles me, do you remember this from science when they say, like, if you drop a feather and you drop a bowling ball? In a vacuum, yeah. 
that they they fall at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody was trying to argue with me at one point. It's like they both hit the ground at the same time. I'm like, no, they won't, <laughs> because it, first of all, we weren't talking about a vacuum. The, the person I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but they didn't understand the difference between rate and speed. So oh, when sure. I when I think about when I think about the difference in those terms, I think about how we understand gravity. I'm like, what if you know, like. What if our understanding of gravity is the equivalent of assu- assuming that rate and speed are the same thing? Sure. And then when somebody goes, no, actually, and shows the diversion and the path, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, then I can lift this block. <laughs> well, there's, there's also the understanding of, of time in that same sense, like time as a concept versus length of time and how, and how length of time differs depending on your perspective or vantage point. Right, like speed, uh, light speed travel. Yeah, and so exactly. Forth. Like, or or if you're close to, you know, the the theoretical models of of you being close to um, something with such a massive gravitational pull that time operates far slower for you, and there's physical evidence that that happens. Um, so time is relative. But if time is truly relative, then that means our understanding of the entire universe has to change. Yeah, then our understanding of the entire universe is relative then, because. That's right. That's it's right. it's one part of the equation, right? So once you once you make one part of the equation variable, the whole equation becomes variable. But this is the reason why we need a framework to operate with in order to have a shared experience that makes sense because if all of a sudden we all accept that time itself is relative, then we are in some big trouble. <laughs> right. Well, what you have to what you have to do is it's not a matter of of accepting the fact that things aren't absolute. Sure. Doesn't mean operating without rules and assumptions. The problem is, is that we make these assumptions as if they're absolute and we never leave the door open for any, to, for them to be disproved, even though that's the core basis of science. Well, even something that's provable, we can't accept. Um, for example, the, the belief that there were only what, two to three million um, indigenous the indigenous population of North America was only two or three million. I mean, I remember reading that way back in school. Um, and now our understanding of it is that there was at least 30 to 40 million. And that's still not really taught by popular science, even though most scientists accept it as, as being absolutely true. Um, like even something like that, where there's actual evidence that, that, that disproves the old rule, we still can't let go of our old rules. And that's, and that's not even talking about something that has an incomplete theoretical model um, for which we have no current evidence yet. Like, for example, we still have no idea really how time works, and we don't have any reason to believe that we will understand it anytime soon. But we still operate under an assumption that our model, as we understand it, is the absolute model. That's crazy. That's arrogant. And, and then, yeah, and then, and it's not even that we operate that it's that it's true. That's it's the arrogance, like you said. It's that we make fun of other things that challenge it. Oh yeah, because, that's true. Yeah, you know the assumption that 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 well, we've got, we have the right answer. It's like that's not the way things work. The questions are supposed to remain open. You know, I have a book, that, another book that I have yet to read, um, what, that challenges the theory that we all came from Africa. Because this apparently this guy says he says if that's true, then how come everybody doesn't have that DNA strain in them? Sure. He says the one that people, he, if I, I think I've read this correctly. 
it, I think thing, and it's part of the reason why. Yeah, another notch in my thing for believing that humanity is much older than than we believe it to be. Well, and also he's he says the one that, if I remember correctly, the one that strand of DNA that does seem to show up in everybody is actually Aboriginal. Yeah. So his yep. theory is that everybody came from Australia, not Africa. Yeah. Which I mean pretty drastic difference but then when you actually take pangea and put it all back together not really that drastic of a difference because hey by the way take a look at all of the different versions of that supercontinent through the earth's history and it'll fascinate the crap out of you Mm -hmm. because it's not just pangea pangea was the first or at least the biggest landmass that we understand but man it broke apart many different ways and at many different times throughout the the history of the earth which is not surprising nope Let's say, oh, we we took a system and we we came up with a really easy model and found out it wasn't easy. No yeah. shit, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh like, man, I like it already. I like being back, Chad. You have no idea. <laughs> My entire life has been dealing with finite things like the EDD and and oh, we should do this every month at least, yeah. um, just to like at least for our sanity. Yeah, I need I, I need to be able to talk these things out too because. <laughs> I get lost. I get lost in my own head where I don't even know. Like, oh, I don't know. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm on a different planet. Sometimes I don't mean like crazy, but I mean just like isolated. Yeah, sure. There's also um, speaking of, um, I just recently watched a bunch of random stuff and read quite a few things about how the Sahara um, used to be a lush and vibrant landscape. Interesting. You have to send that to me. I want to see that. Yeah, it's interesting. And and a lot of the physical evidence that um, I point to when it comes to the age of human civilization um, is actually from that area. Mm. How, how hilariously unexplored it is because of some cataclysmic event that happened in human history um, that rewrote the, the, the history of that area um, in such a way that there was a massive time gap between... Um, what it was understood as, as a lush environment and where it is now, which is this barren dead area. Yeah. I think there's, there's all these, we take these assumptions so often they're like, Oh, this is barren. It must've always been barren. Nope. That's, that's dumb. Especially that when we're dumb. talking about moving continents too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how point zero 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 degree difference in the tilt of the earth can dramatically change the climate for hundreds of miles. Right. You know, the more you start playing around with these thoughts and and stuff, you start going, you look at some of the loopier theories out there and you go, maybe that's not that crazy. Sure. Well, I mean, and I don't think any theory inherently is loopy um, in the sense that there's there's a reason why I don't believe that the earth is flat, for example. It's because there's empirical evidence that proves that it isn't. Um, But that doesn't mean that at one point or another, I didn't at least ask the question. Of course, the earth isn't flat, but it's not flat because we have physical evidence that proves otherwise. You know what I mean? Right. Well, my my one thing is we can't see the ice walls. Mm. So apparently, you know, like the thing, the theory is the thing that stops things from flying off the end is really tall ice walls. Yeah, that's crazy. If the earth was flat, you could see really far because there'd be no curvature to block you seeing distances. That's right. So if you got close enough to the edge, you would see the ice walls. Yep. So, but once again, dude, tomorrow somebody falls off the earth. Guess what? We have to rewrite the whole rules. Yeah. 
or if somebody discovers a massive crater like the one that they are currently exploring up in Scandinavia, uh, then we may have to rewrite the uh, the understanding that we have about extinction events on this planet. Mm-hmm. There are now estimations that um, there are far more extinction events that we, than we are aware of only because we haven't found the physical evidence for them. And not all of them come from cataclysmic uh, impacts. Um, quite a few of them come from things like climate change or the shifting of the magnetic poles or whatever it may be that, you know, um, dramatically changes um, the way our planet works. Um, right. You know, the one thing that we don't realize on many levels is that there, so there are two things, right? The first thing is that um, um, ecological models are extraordinarily sensitive, which means if you introduce any number of changes, like if you look at the environment in Australia, for example, simply introducing rabbits into that ecosystem completely shattered it. Oh, right? yeah. Um, and we're not even talking about a temperature change. So the, so the one thing that we make the assumption about is that, you know, it, it's, it's got to be some asteroid from, from outer space that comes along and completely smashes um, into the world and causes a nuclear winter that then kills off everything. No, I mean, there's, so the two assumptions, the two assumptions that we go, go by are that one um, ecosystems are pretty robust. Nope. That's not the case. Ecosystems are remarkably fragile. And number two, which is the more important one, the assumption we can make is that life is incredibly resilient. Right. Well, just think about, you know, the extinction level event that they assume was the crater that created the Gulf of Mexico, right? Yep. Say that wasn't an extinction level event. It still would have created huge migratory changes for the animals. Of course. And that completely changes entire ecosystems overnight. Not to mention what it probably did to the fucking ocean. Can you imagine the waves? Oh, sure. And well, let's, well, let's, that did the sea life? Not only that, can you think about how because of um, the heat generated initially, you have a bunch of polarized cap melt. And then because of the cold that follows, you have a refreezing. So you now take it, take it any glass of water that you have, um, put ice in it and then pour boiling water into it and see what happens. Right. Not to mention all the, all the stuff from the bottom that's that broken up and now is part of the water. Absolutely. The yep. pH balance of the whole ocean. ocean. Yep. The yep. dust and, and the ash in the air, what that will do to all the plant life. I mean, just, but not instantaneously. Like some of those changes could be hundreds of thousands of years changes. Yep. So like, like the crater we're talking about in Scandinavia, um, they are now estimating it's about 13,000 years old. And what's there's the a one in Russia? Russia? Oh, the, I uh, forget the name of it. It's like a G, uh, I think. I'll look it up right now. While yeah, it's the one, that's, uh, the one in Siberia, I believe it was. Yeah, let me look it up. What was? Yeah, it? but I mean, even even the asteroid that I'm talking about in Scandinavia, in Greenland, I believe it is the upper, the northwest coast of Greenland, thirteen thousand years old. Um, the 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 history of humankind is about ten thousand years old. There's a weird correlation there. Yeah, it's again, damn it, Bataglia. That's not what I was looking for. Bataglia crater. That's not the one I was thinking of. No, I know Tung, what you're talking. Tunguska. It's not Tunguska. That's what it's I was thinking Tunguska? of. That. Okay. I was thinking of Tunguska. Got it. I don't think that's a huge crater, but it was a it was a meteor event. Mm-hmm. Um actually, you know what? I I I'm sending you an image right now on your phone. <laughs> Tell me what this image looks like to you when you get it. 
This is something I've been waiting like four months to talk to you about. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay, what does it look like? Ah, oh, I don't want to see that. What does it look like? There's no they, nobody else can see it. What's it look like? Oh, Jesus. Um, it looks like one of the grays, man. Okay. That's not a gray. Oh but god. It, but it, it looks it like one, right? Freaks me out right now. Yeah. Thanks for okay. that. Thanks for the warning, dude. It's not a gray though. It's that it's one is, of the few things I have an irrational fear about. Okay. That is on. supposedly an 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 Asian spirit. Um so this is why I've been waiting to tell you about it. Oh. God. It looks like a gray. It definitely looks like a gray, except for it has tiny eyes instead of very big eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, for anybody that's actually listening to this, Lamb, as you can tell from that reaction, hates the grays. Oh. Terrifying. So this is going to trip you out, Lamb. In 1917, Aleister Crowley claimed to have made contact with an unearthly being. Okay, they say unearthly in the thing that I pulled up. Other people think that it was an Asian spirit of some sort. I'm assuming Chinese, um, if I remember correctly. And he channeled things in communication with this. And this is a drawing of that spirit that he communicated with. Okay. Which, as you say, looks like a gray. Mm -hmm. Many people believe that this is the origin of the grace. Yeah. Some people, some people believe that the story came, you know, that the way that they looked came from this, you know, mm-hmm. that, that there never were grays, but the, like the hysteria came out of this. Other people believe that when he made contact, that he opened a doorway and then that's the doorway that they walked through. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Do you know what the name of that creature you're looking at is? No. Lamb. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Oh man. <laughs> I'm not even You are sure so connected to the Grays it's not even funny. I don't even know what to. <laughs> and you know what's really weird about the damn Grays? I have absolutely no idea why I'm terrified of them. Yeah. It's... You know, like I'm not scared of much, man. Like I'm not scared of monsters, I'm not scared of ghosts, I'm not scared of any of that. But for some stupid reason, like just the sheer image of that popping up on my phone right now gave me the chills, the likes of which I can't describe to you. And how like, does it make you feel to look at it now and know that it has your name? It weirder. You know what's you know what's weird weird about that though is that it makes me feel connected to it somehow. Right. And I don't know how to reconcile that feeling. <laughs> that's part of the reason that I made the point of saying that some people believe that it wasn't an unearthly creature, that it was an Asian spirit. Mm-hmm. And you being Asian, I thought was a very interesting connection as well. That is freaking weird, man. Okay, yeah, that's really weird. strange. That, so that maybe my mind on so many levels, I don't even know what to do with that. Jeez. Maybe your preternatural, I'm going to go, I'm going to go a little crazy here and really stretch this out, but maybe your preternatural fear of grays is actually blocking you from the connection that you actually have. Or maybe it's the reason um, it's it, maybe my, my connection to it is the reason I have the preternatural fear. Yeah. Who knows? Both are very possible. God, that's freaky. God, I can't even look at that, but it's so weird. Dude, I, I need to delete it from my phone. I can't even look at it. Like it freaks me out. It's so weird that it has your name. Oh God. It's so weird. <laughs> 
It doesn't, when you really look at it though, it doesn't actually look like the grays that much. It has a big head. That's it. Um, it, it can, here's, here's why I think that it can. Um, because I think a lot of what people assume about the grays, I mean, now we're talking purely theoretical. I'm not saying I believe in aliens. Here's, here's that protecting thing, protection thing. Again. No one's, no one's going to hear this publicly. So we yeah. don't have to do protections I, either way. Um, so I, you see the lumps and just above its eyes, like that, that mm-hmm. large lobe. They almost I, look like eyes. Yeah. I get the sense that in the dark, um, you, you could mistake those for eyes. Or maybe if you were wearing a helmet of some sort. Yeah, or if they're wearing goggles of some kind, some kind of eye protection. You know, what like, I'd like to know is, what is that thing on top of its head? Oh, God, <laughs> who knows? All right, It's I'm hearts. Gonna Those up. are hearts. Again. I'm going to look at it again. Those are hearts on top of its head. Yeah, sure. Is that like a hat? Or is that something emanating from its head? Or is that, uh, I mean, if you look at the way their heads are shaped, um, Maybe our concept of what the heart is is based on that image. Maybe. I don't know, man. There's His body a, looks a, like a vagina, a, though. Yeah, true. Holy Which crap. Which is strange. Yeah. yeah. Look at. Jesus. I, I've been sitting on that for like five months. Man, that freaks me. I can see why you waited. I mean, that's. I, I assume that's probably the reaction you expected. And I, I talked about this when I, when I did an episode with this guy, Jim Perry. And I told him that I had that, and he's like, "Oh, what did what did he say when he when I when you told him about that?" I said, "I haven't told him yet." <laughs> your patience because, is shocking. I don't know if I could have stopped myself if I if I knew the connection and I knew the name of the damn thing, and it was named Chad. I don't know if I could stop myself. Yeah, it was hard, but, but I knew, I couldn't dead. text it. It wouldn't have had the impact as a text. No, no, you got to say it. You did it the only way you could. <laughs> oh my god! So that weird, so, right? That is so freaky to me. Oh man! When you wow, this is this has been a, this episode has gone so differently than how I thought it was going to go. It's a completely different thing. Yeah! Wow! This is just that for is, us. That is bizarre, man. That I keep really looking bizarre. at the screen, wrong screen. I have two computers, and I keep looking at the wrong screen. <laughs> like, how's the waveform pattern doing? Oh, wrong computer. Oh, so yeah, that. When you said so, aliens, that was what it was in the back of my head the whole time while we were talking about other things. It's like, I, don't forget to tell them this time. Don't forget to tell them. That is so crazy, man. Yeah, that yeah. blows my mind. I don't even know what to do with that that knowledge now. It's very strange. It is I very think this is this is why this is why I find these topics so fascinating to me is because one little thing like that. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, your relationship changes. Sure. Because if you let your overly critical, cynical mind, if you let it be in control for too long, it would completely discount something like that. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the fact that a little thing like that can actually alter your perception, there's, there's a value in that of some sort, even if it's just a psychological value. Mm-hmm. Of learning the limits of the human brain. You know, like to be able yeah, to contemplate yeah. these things, you actually stretch your brain in a way that I don't think even science can stretch your brain. Yeah, and I think that there's 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 an aspect of this that we really 
that really gets to me that 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 I, I'm not even sure how the hell I'm going to articulate this properly, but there's there's something in in wonder, you know, um, and it, which is weird because this this it I feel like the the podcast comes full circle when we talk about stuff like this. Um, in there's a reason why philosophy and science are so inherently linked. It's because you need the creativity, you need that sense of wonder, the ability to ask the question in order to conceive of the question that might lead you to an answer. Right. Well, you know, it's only a recent thing that science is completely divorced from the unreal. The sure. original scientists were alchemists; they were witches. You know, they there was a supernatural or a preter not preternatural but a supernatural or a paranormal aspect i wouldn't no not i don't want to say aspect partner to science that no longer exists and okay. i think that it's actually detrimental because having that partner to ask those strange questions i think is what pushed science forward sure to be able to sure. to be able to look at the moon and go, what if that's not what if that's not stone? You know, like somebody would ask, what if that's hollow? Oh, the gardeners are here. How how loud can you hear that noise? Mm, barely. Okay, good. Because I know this is a good microphone. It's really loud for me, but as long as it's not super loud for you, then we'll keep going. I mean, don't get me wrong, I can hear it, but I, it, it, I don't, it, I don't care. Back in a bit. Yeah. Like I said, not for public, but but yeah, I think that there's the separating those two has become detrimental. And like, there's part of me that like when I first started doing these topics, I wanted to go big and, um, you know, hit like the big topics. But what I found instead is I've actually been edging my way in. Where it's like, okay, well, this isn't too crazy of an idea, but let's, you know, like I did one on, um, there's a small section of Liz Gilbert's book, Big Magic. The mm-hmm. section she actually named the book for, where she presents the idea that she believes that ideas are actually living entities, and they actually move from person to person looking for a partner. Mm. There's a really great story to go along with it. So I, I'm like, that's first of all, I didn't expect a topic like that to be in the, this mainstream book on creativity. Yeah. So like, not a huge like jump into the craziness, but it was an edge into the topic. And I found it, I find it more interesting to being, to edging in. And I think that that's, it's different than most people will go straight to aliens. Whereas I'm, I want to, I'm, you know, like questions of new age and stuff like that, you know, like positive thinking. Those aren't, too far stretches, but I, I th- I'm, I've been finding those a really good place to start. Well, and 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 like the thing we were talking about with the indigenous population of North America, we do have empirical evidence of some of these things. Like I have it in my own life, you know. Like for example, um, I work for the government, and I'm working for the government during a time of pandemic. And I will tell you now that the stress that I feel has definitely had a a a tangible effect on my physical state, you know, and it's very clear that that's happening. 
So right. there has to be something to that. There has to be something to the, and if, if, if a negative feeling can affect you that way, a positive feeling can do just the same in the opposite direction. Exactly. And, and not only that, but I mean, I look around at, you know, the, so I have, I have the tug and pull on both sides of that, which makes it inherently complicated, which, you know, I also help to, to do a lot of activism stuff, some, some nonprofit stuff. And there's a tangible positivity that comes out of that too, as well. And it replenishes me and that's, and it clearly helps my physical state in that direction. And not only that, but from those groups, there, there, there are so many, for example, like one Orchard City Indivisible, we have our meeting once a week and we're in our 11th week now of doing virtual meetings because we decided, screw it, we're going to carry on. And I, I can't even tell you the number of people who are saying that, that that meeting defines their, their well-being that they feel better and more positive and healthier and, and more connected because of that. So that's a tangible representation of how that positive feeling. And, and, you know, you know, me as a person, I'm, I'm a pretty black and white, uh, tangible, sciencey, um, skeptical human being, but that, but I now, I see such clear indicators that those things actually have a very tangible effect on our physical world. I've having gone through all that period of severe anxiety that I went through, I mm-hmm. know it's true for a fact. But what's what I've found very interesting is reading stuff about um, magic and witchcraft. There's mm-hmm. these these assumptions that they are these crazy things. When you actually start reading about it, most of it is not really different than setting attentions. Mm-hmm. It's literally like it's actually not even very different than prayer. The, the, those three things are fundamentally the exact same thing. Sure. There's just there's outward manifestations of them that are different. You know, like or, where you do it or what implements you use to do it. But the actual mechanisms when you get into the people who are explaining what's going on are the same. You know, it's funny. I don't think it's about mechanisms. I Explain. think. I think it's about buy-in. And oh, totally. That's the mechanism. Yeah. And, that's and exactly think, it. And I think that, that the buy-in becomes the critical part um, in the sense that, like, for example, I'm, I'm not a religious person, so religion wasn't going to be my buy-in. You know what I mean? But right. whatever framework that I used in order to create that buy-in, to create that unrelenting belief, that unquestioned belief, is what... It's, you know, because there's no body left over. <laughs> To go with the kill metaphor. But when you do it on paper, there's a line through it. Right. It's still there. You can still read it. You know, it's dead, but it's not dead. And I thought that was a really fantastic uh, way of of talking about the differences between those two mediums, too. Mm -hmm. Which I think that's probably why I like journaling in, in paper. Because I like having the mistakes. When I go back... And I look at old journals and go, wow, I sure botched... Because uh, I'm, I'm not a great speller. <laughs> I sure botched the spelling of that word right there. Mm-hmm. Or I've been... I don't... This just developed out of nowhere. Recently, in the last six months, I've started writing in cursive again. And I haven't written in cursive for decades, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you'll see words crossed out in my journal. And what that is, is I started to write the word... But I got like wrapped up in the motion, right? And either made the wrong letter 
or skip right. some letters or yeah. put them in the wrong order. <laughs> so there's scribbles all through there where I'm like, oh, just, oh, there's, I've got the H in there. Yeah, it's such poor cursive. It's not even legible anymore. It's I mean, there's something I've I've read. I don't know. I've, I don't know if I'll be able to find this for show notes because this was years and years and years ago. But there was a study done on the difference with how your brain processes information written in cursive, mm-hmm. written in print, and then typed. And cursive was by far the best for your brain. Interesting. And it's it's because you're using it's one of the few activities in the world where you're using your both quadrants of your brain at the same time. The spatial quadrant and then the, the analytical quadrant, yeah. which used to be referred to as right brain, left brain, is no longer a good way to refer to it because we know they're connected. So you're shaping the letters and you're there's an art to cursive. Yeah. You know, you're making these connections. And there's also a part of your brain that has to remember, okay, when I get to the end of this line, because you know, a cursive essentially for a word is one continuous line. When I get yeah. to the end of this line, I gotta go back and dot that T and that or dot that I, cross that yeah. T, mm-hmm. put the other leg on that X, you know, whatever. So yeah. you, you're you're also keeping those things. So there, I could see that. You're more conscious of what you're writing when you're writing in cursive. Yeah, really I always found for me when I was, when I, because uh, with uh, last week with going through my, my old journals, I have one journal where like the first half of it, I did everything in cursive. And it was a point in time where I was like, I was very like intent on just everything that I wrote, everything that I, every idea that I put, you know, to paper, I did in cursive. Um, mm-hmm. Just to probably for the same reason, or just for, it just, something about it just happened and it felt like it, 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 I felt more connected because what it did was it I, I never once kind of started feeling my brain drift off into like something else mm-hmm. I, was, I was focused just that little bit more on what I was thinking and what I was writing and I felt like things were flowing more and I was married to what I was doing far more um you know deeply than um just scribbling in you know chicken scratch you know regular fucking boring ass letters with shitty ass handwriting you mm-hmm. know because it's like which is i'm looking at right now my shitty ass handwriting on these cards i wonder like if i if you were to read you know if you're to find like a um you know something you know more than the adventures of Richard Scarry. You know, if you're to find something a little bit more kind of mentally profound, written in cursive, and listen to like Mozart while you did it, would that just like blow your fucking mind? Probably. Honestly, I, I, what I find fascinating is, you know, these handwriting experts, they they're able to insinuate some sort of personality from handwriting. Mm-hmm. And what, knowing that, I'm watching all the forensic shows and shit that I watch, I notice that my cursive fluctuates. I don't write the same cursive every day. Mm-hmm. So, some days it slants to the right a little bit more. Yeah. You know, some some days it's sloppier. Some days it's beautiful and flowing. And yeah, and I'm wondering if that's the, literally the, the manifestation of different moods of my personality. You know, like. I'm, you know, like, obviously, this is 
probably an apparent connection, but still kind of mind blowing that it's true. When my writing's hand, when my writing's messy, mm-hmm. usually my mind is messy that day too. Yeah, I was going to say it's like I feel like it. I found for me, anytime that happened, it was even though I'm saying like, yeah, by writing cursive, I was more paying attention and more intently, you know, uh, you know, in tune with what I was doing. It's still like, if my brain is distracted, my brain's going to be distracted. Right. Like the hand, eye, muscle memory, all that coordination, all that kind of shit is going to be thrown off. And it's like, not to mention the emotional stuff. Right. And it's like, you know, I almost feel like with writing and things like that. And it's, it's the same kind of, uh, you should follow the same, uh, kind of, uh, idea or if like for music if you're playing an instrument and you try to go to it and you try to play and you're feeling not connected to it and you're feeling out of it and it's feeling struggle like you're struggling and it's feeling forced mm-hmm. put it down switch instruments yeah just or walk away exactly. put it down walk away you know do something else because it's the outcome is not going to be you're not going to benefit you know from practicing the piano or practicing the guitar or practicing whatever it is if you're feeling because there's just some days where you're not gonna be able to do it you know right. and well, they call it a rut right and so you're literally stuck in a groove in the ground that you can't get out of yeah so like if you were to try to you know like man i just can't the, the, the ideas aren't flowing or they're there but i just can't seem to get them out cool stop they'll you know, it's not meant to be happening right now. Go do something else. And, and that's one of the hard thing, hardest things too, is knowing the difference between then and when you should push through. Yeah. Sometimes you do have to push through a block. I feel like if you've, you know, if you've been at it for, you know, enough time, you've been through those moments where you've seen, you can kind of, you have the intuition and knowing like, okay, I just need to, you know, kind of change up what I'm doing this little bit. And okay, there it is. Now I've made myself, I, you know, I got myself over the hump. Right. If you've, if you've done it long enough, you know, if you're, you know, if you're cracking out, yeah, then you're, you're too far gone. If you're about to smash the guitar, it's time to walk away. (laughs) Yeah. Like just literally nothing you do is working. You're like, okay, I'm going to stop trying to do um, scales. I'm just going to sit here and just try to like, if everything feels uninspired and it's just like, you're like, why the fuck am I doing this? Like, just put it down. Not forever. Just put it down for right now. If you're like trying to write something, it's like, God, I can't even fucking... My J's are looking like F's. This is bullshit. Um, <laughs> so it's like, just just step away for a moment, man. Just step away. Just maybe go read something. Maybe go watch something. Maybe find a whole new... You know, something unrelated to what it is that you're trying to get at, you know? Um, yeah, it's... Creativity is not always so cut and dry. Yeah. Um, before we get on to our tent pole idea for this episode, there's one little thing that I wanted to bring into the conversation that we had talked about last week about ownership mm-hmm. uh, and inaction and like being lazy and avoiding shit. I ran across this card and I was like, oh, I got to bring that into the episode. So I read this book recently called Claim Your Power. Yes, it is a self-helpy type book. I didn't really know that at the time. It was recommended to me by um, someone that I didn't think that was into that kind of stuff. It's actually like a 40-day program type thing. I just fucking read it. I didn't do the program. 
it's actually uber Christian. But anyhow, whether you like that or not, that's what it is. One of the ideas came from it. Uh, the author's name is Mastin Kip. Is when you avoid taking action because there is an outcome that you fear, your inaction actually brings that feared outcome to life. So if you fear, if you don't do things because you fear failure, you're failing already by not doing anything. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really profound. Where it's like, oh, that thing that you're fearing, you're avoiding that because you're afraid of it. You're already getting that. Yeah, guess what? You just you, you just brought that upon yourself. That's pretty crazy. That's a that's a really powerful way to look at that. We're like, well, it can't be any worse than what I'm already doing, which is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's. This should be an interesting conversation. Our tentpole conversation today. So this comes from an idea that comes from Architecture of Happiness by Lane de Botton. It's a beautiful book. It's probably, I'm making a guess, the year's not over. It'll probably be in my top three books of the year. He says, this is not an exact quote, but societies crave in art and architecture that which they are lacking. Order craves realistic art and its escapism. Chaos craves the rhythm, harmony, and simplicity of abstraction. So what my question was looking at that idea says, do we find beauty in the things that in things that contain what we lack? That's my question. Okay. Did I make that clear? I might have stumbled over my words there. Give it to me one more time. So what he claims is it does it does bear a little more explaining on the order thing. He says that societies crave things that they lack. Mm -hmm. When you look at their art and architecture, what mm -hmm. art and architecture are popular during certain times and in certain places shows you what that society was lacking. So in a time of overt order where things are way too ordered, maybe the when you live in a place with an authoritarian government, mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot of realistic art because people want to imagine being somewhere else. So they want it to look as real as possible. Mm. They want to see, you know, like beautiful women and, you know, evocative landscapes. Whereas in times of um, more chaotic times, you'll see more abstract art because abstract art is about rhythm and harmony and simplicity since it, there's no representation there. So the chaos craves rhythm, harmony, and simplicity. So what I'm wondering is if we as people, rather than societies, whether we look for beauty in places that have things that we don't. You know, like if I, if I lack order, do I find things that are ordered beautiful? If I lack emotion, do I find things that are emotionally evocative beautiful? Mm. Interesting. Okay. It's like kind of like a, they say that if you, if your body needs salt, you'll suddenly start craving salt. That's kind of what I'm wondering. Do we crave that which we lack? I feel like, I mean, like anything, it's not always, you know, 
cut and dry, black and white, yes or no. Of course, and uh, you're having to think of this on the spot too. So right, but I mean, I'm thinking of situations where yes, there's you know people that uh, you know seclude themselves, you know, and kind of survive forever without you know human contact and without uh kind of what would be all you know there's those people that go up and just separate themselves from uh, modern society and live in a shack with no electricity and shit in a hole in the ground and um live off the land and get off just fine with never seen another fucking soul and uh no telephones, no fucking this, no that. Like all the things that we just see on a daily basis, like they get away with it just fine. So, um, I think for me, it's more because we don't all find the same thing or need the same things. Right. We don't exactly. All see the same things as beautiful. Um, you know, I always kind of toy with the fun idea that. For me, what tastes like the taste of sweet to you could be the taste of sour. But we both, when we say, Is that tastes sweet? Yeah. Because to you, what you know what I mean? Right. Like the color thing. Right. Like like, uh, color we might red. not be seeing the same green, but we've always been told when we see that thing, Things it's that, called yeah, green. Exactly. So here's a strawberry. What does that taste like? It tastes like a strawberry. But that strawberry to you could taste like an orange. And the orange, yeah, orange shit. Like, exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yes, we do seek out that which, um, I mean, let's look at music. I mean, for me, it's always easy to go to music first. It's like, mm -hmm. if I am, if I'm lacking the feeling of, you know, companionship or um, compassion or you know love and affection all that kind of stuff i very much will be a sappy son of a bitch and i will listen to the most fucking sappy fucking like heartbreaking love songs and shit um because like it, listen like, to barry manilow when because you're it makes you feel you know mm -hmm. like or just something that to me, even if it's not like about, you know, like she broke my heart. And like if, if it didn't have to be like that kind of shit, it can just be something that makes me feel the same type of emotion that I'm missing. So mm -hmm. like the cure like, or something like that. Sure. Something like that. Um, Overly romantic. But, yeah. You know, it's, but is that something, you know, cause then I have to wonder, like, is that something because when I was younger, someone that I looked up to and respected was like, you know, told me some sort of like, hey, this this is the greatest fucking record to listen to for a heartbreak or whatever. And all of a sudden I just used that and it was the snowball started rolling down the hill. And I went from that album to this song, to this song, to that fucking mm -hmm. album and this and that. And before you know it, you already forgot. How did I get on this? track anyway i don't remember where this all started but i just know where i'm going and where i've been and mm -hmm. blah, blah blah so um sometimes man that's a difficult that's a difficult topic to really well i think with music too it's easy to 
you know, we could probably think of examples where that doesn't work, where it's like, when I'm angry, I want to listen to something angry, not something happy. Yeah. But I think what we're craving there is not anger or relief from anger. I think what we're craving there is release. Yeah, the release, the to be able to kind of an outlet to to show what it is that you're not getting a chance to show. Yeah, you're like, I'm angry, but I know I can't just fucking be. And you're playing traditional um, uh, Indian music and Indian songs. Like, there's a lot of that stuff. I mean, there's not real, there's not much improvisation. Right. You know, you learn the song. It's like if you play Beethoven, people expect you to play Beethoven's notes. Exactly. Because it's more so at that point, it's not a song. You know, it's not a hit. It's not a pop hit. What it is is almost like scripture, you know. It's like yeah, it's a, it's a performance, yeah, rather than a, a jam or you know. Like, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on the dead? Speaking uh, of bands that do the opposite and play the never play the same song, right? The same way um, ever. I never really got into the dead. It's tough. Um, I think it's tough for my generation, your generation. You know, like I, I think we're uh, technically. I think we're still a part of the same generation, but um, anybody after their generation, I think the dead can be a tough swallow because it's so... It's very specific. It's a specific type of music, specific type of person. That and I don't know how to what the word is. It's so soft. Um, you know what I mean? Like it does, they do, They're playing the blues, but they're never rocking. You know what I mean? They're... My byproducts aren't necessarily visual, you know. Like uh, the your coffee, the the coffee shop, um, Snake and Butterfly, those are visual byproducts. So it doesn't mean just because um, that it has to be something you're doing visual that will give you visual byproducts. Mm-hmm. But um, my stuff, for the most part, doesn't have visual byproducts, which is why I think comments and video are mm-hmm. my my way forward. I'm, yeah, I'm that makes really, sense. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm really just interested. I'm playing around with live video because I like the live video, not only because people can jump in, but because I don't have to think about editing. It's mm. already live. I can't fix it. Yeah, yeah. I so see what it, you mean. It removes that thing from my thought process and it makes it enjoyable for me to go to, even though I hate looking at my face on video. Mm. Um, but anyways... Um, let's let's cut this because I want to talk about some other stuff with you afterwards. But okay. 